I want to explain why we're going to take two weeks to, spend, uh, to, to, to study a book that's hard to find and hard to pronounce. I think most of you would agree that the Minor Prophets are a difficult genre to, to grasp, right? If the Bible were a map, the Minor Prophets would be that hazardous place that nobody really likes to go to because you're not sure if you'll get out. We like to spend time in the mountains, at the beach, in the Caribbean. We, we go to the Gospels and the Psalms. We don't really go to the Minor Prophets because it's weird there. Things are strange. It's difficult terrain there, right? Uh, everything about this book is going to be a little bit odd. Habakkuk and God are going to converse using poetry. We don't usually do that. They're going to talk about evening wolves and men burning incense to fishing nets. And you're like, wait, what, what's happening? I don't get this. We're going to learn about the famous Chaldean army in the slopes of Mount Paran. Just riveting stuff, right? It's a strange land when we walk through there. So why are we going to spend two weeks in Habakkuk? When you strip away some of these literary differences and maybe contextual differences and get to the heart of the book, you're going to find that Habakkuk was a man that was not very different from us. In fact, he's asking the same questions about 2,500 years ago that we're asking now, or at least we're beginning to ask. Here's what Habakkuk was facing. He had to deal with the fact that his beloved country, Judah, was falling apart. Internally, it was a mess. The people of his country had abandoned God, and they were walking away from him. And he's grieved by this. I'm not going to make a one-to-one comparison between America and Judah. I don't think we should do that. And yet, we can grieve that our country is walking away from God and Christian morality. And I know that affects you. I know it does. And it's, it's just amping up more and more. So we're asking those questions. What, what is happening in our country? Why is this going on? Well, Habakkuk asked that question. Habakkuk also lived in a time of global unrest. The world powers were shifting again. They had dodged a bullet when the Assyrian kingdom came so close to Judah. They actually destroyed the northern tribes, but Judah was spared. Well, Assyria had lost power, and Babylon was coming up in their wake, and Babylon proved to be more ferocious and vicious. And again, you know, I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're starting to ask those questions. Our world is chaotic, is it not? Is it stable right now? Do we, do we feel like things are just at rest and at ease? It's not. And uh, maybe we're not at the point Habakkuk was where we've got a world power stomping through the earth, but we are wondering what's going on in the Middle East. What's happening in Russia? What's happening in China? We don't know. There's a lot of confusion here. And so Habakkuk already asked that question. On a deeper level, Habakkuk is asking some deep theological questions that I think we're going to have to deal with. In other words, what, what was God doing in the midst of this chaos? Where, where was he? How should the people of God respond to a world that's falling apart, to a country that's abandoning God, and to a world that is violent? How should the people of God respond? How should God respond? Those are the questions that Habakkuk is asking, and those are the questions that we're asking. It's the message of Habakkuk and a message that I believe we need to hear today. And so if you will, let's pray, and we will begin a study of this book. Heavenly Father, we confess our need to you right now. Without your presence, we confess, God, that we would simply be gathering to study an ancient document. We'd be looking at history, and that's about it. But God, with you in the room... With your presence, we're doing something far greater. We are hearing the eternal words of God. We've gathered here on a Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in the resurrection, and we believe in the Spirit, and we believe that he is here, and that he is present, and that he is in in the proclamation of this word. So God, we submit to you right now, and we want to hear what you would teach us through this rich, 
book, the words of life. God, open our hearts and let us respond in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's, let's dig in, Habakkuk 1 verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, that's it. A lot of prophets give you some background information, some biographical, who's this guy, where's he from, nothing. We know very little about Habakkuk. We don't know where he came from, we don't know where he lived, we don't know his mom, his dad, any of that. Um, the other week, my five-year-old daughter asked me why Habakkuk's mommy named him Habakkuk, and I was like, that's a good question. As I was studying it this week, apparently the Jews really didn't know why he was named Habakkuk either. It's not a Hebrew word. It, the best they can tell is that it's an Assyrian flower um, called the Hambakuku, right? That's it. <laughs> Habakkuk was named after an Assyrian flower. Okay, that's, that's, that's all. The flower doesn't have any sort of secret power, so that doesn't help us at all. It's just a flower, a guy named after a flower. Commentators also disagree about the exact date of his prophecy. When did he prophesy? We're not sure exactly. We do know that he was in the days just before Babylon came in and destroyed his country. So he's probably around the time of Jeremiah, but we don't know. Some people put him way earlier, but that's about it. Things are getting bad in Jerusalem and Judah. We're not even quite sure how to pronounce his name. Most scholars, and I agree with this, tend to emphasize the last syllable. Habakkuk, that's how they would, would say it. Um, I tend to agree with this, but... I don't want to sound like an idiot for two weeks. So because we're in the South, I'm going to stick with the preferred Southern pronunciation, Habakkuk. There we go. Does that sound good? That'll be more familiar to our ears, Habakkuk. So what do we know about Habakkuk? There's a lot we don't know. What do we know about him? He was a frustrated man. That word in here, the oracle that Habakkuk saw, really implies burden. This is the burden of the prophet. He's heavy. He's weighed down. He's loaded. God has given him turmoil, and he's trying to carry it now. He was frustrated with his country. Why were you not turning to God? But more importantly, he was frustrated with God. Where was God? Why was God so slow to respond? And so Habakkuk engaged God in a conversation. You have to understand this is rare. Happens very rarely in the Bible where God and a human will engage in this kind of conversation. It's pretty fascinating. This is what makes the book of Habakkuk different than most prophets. You see, most prophets would do this. They would bring a message from God, they would take the message and bring it to a seemingly deaf people. God's message through the prophet to a deaf people. This is what Habakkuk does. He turns it around. The message of the people, the message of the righteous people, through the prophet to a seemingly deaf God. Isn't that interesting? He turns it. So he's taking the message of the people to God and he's saying, where are you? He's frustrated. He's burdened. That's the conversation. Let me outline the conversation for you. Habakkuk is three chapters. We're going to look at the first two this morning, and we're going to look at the third next week. But let me outline the first two chapters. It's pretty straightforward. Habakkuk will complain in verses 2 through 4. God will reassure him, 5 through 11. Habakkuk, as biblical characters are apt to do, he will complain yet again. <laughs> that will happen from verse 12 all the way into the second chapter. And then finally, God will reassure him. So complaint, reassurance, complaint, reassurance. That's the outline here. There's quite a bit of material. I know it's more than we're used to digesting, so we're going to really kind of go over the top of it and just kind of grab some of the theological ideas from this book. It's rich. So let's start with Habakkuk's first complaint in verse 2. Join me as we read this. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. 
Habakkuk begins this conversation to God with a classic lament. His beloved nation, God's chosen covenant people, had perverted justice. As he scanned his country, all he saw was rebellion and violence, corruption, and this was not right. God's chosen people that he had called out of Egypt were acting like anarchists. And Habakkuk is saying, God, where are you? This is not right. Why don't you see? Why don't you hear? Why aren't you doing anything about this? This type of lament tends to make us sensible Americans a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Whenever we come across these very emotional passages, the biblical characters, we're like, wait, you need to tune that down a little bit. You need to brush up on your theology, and you need to learn that God's got it under control. He hears you. You don't need to cry about it, all right? (laughs) Back on off a little bit. It's in God's hands. He'll take care of it. We need to realize, though, that Habakkuk's good theology drove him to this lament. It was his theology that forced him to cry out to God like this. See, see this? Habakkuk was a very good theologian. He knew the scriptures well. We're going to find that throughout this entire book. He knew the Bible. And his, scripture, his understanding of the scriptures under, formed his understanding of God. Okay, so according to Deuteronomy 28, if you look at Deuteronomy 28, it's going to say that Israel, if you disobey, you will be cursed. Habakkuk would read that and he'd say, I see my people disobeying, why aren't they cursed? Where's the punishment? Where's the judgment? Why aren't you doing anything about it? It was his good theology that drove him to lament. What he saw in the Bible did not line up with what he saw on the ground. He says, God, you're not acting like you said you would. And that drove him to lament. One of the reasons we don't lament and we shy away from this kind of emotional response and emotional interactions with God is because we're heavily influenced by an ancient philosophy called Stoicism. This philosophy tapered off many centuries ago, and yet it's still just under our surface. We just feel it so, so real. This philosophy tells us that our world is fixed. There's nothing you can do about it. We're pawns. You can't control anything. And so like a dog tied to a cart, you just walk wherever the cart leads you. You just are helpless. You just go with the flow. And in this kind of philosophy, emotions are the enemy. If you like start screaming and crying out and emotions and lament, that means that you're immature. You have an unbalanced view of the world and you need to get in line. That's stoicism. If you want a good example of stoicism, the classic Winnie the Pooh gives us a good example. Eeyore the donkey is a classic stoic, right? The poor donkey lost his tail. What's he going to do about it? Nothing. (laughs) He's not going to do anything about it. He just blindly accepts fate. Christianity, on the other hand, that's not good example of stoicism. Don't look to the Bible for stoics, for people that just go with the flow. You see, we believe in a living God that can hear, that can see. We believe that the world truly is in God's hand, and he's good, and he cares. When our world is falling apart, and what we see in the scriptures, and what we know of God does not line up with what we know in the world, we cry out and say, where are you? How long? This is not right. It's good theology that drives us to lament. And it turns out that God was already very well aware of the injustices in Judah. It didn't get past him. In fact, God was putting on the final touches of a brilliant plan. An unbelievable plan. Literally, Habakkuk, you're not going to believe it. It's so incredible, you're not even going to believe it. Let's let's read it. This is the second part of our outline, God's first reassuring response in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, Habakkuk. 
For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind, and they go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. I've titled this God's first reassuring response because at least it begins with a little bit of reassurance. God tells Habakkuk after this lament, he says, listen, I, I, I hear, look, see, I've got a plan. That had to have provided a little bit of comfort. We know that memory verse, behold, I'm, I'm gonna do something in your days that you would not believe if told. That's a reassuring statement, right? Uh, but before you put it on a t-shirt, <laughs> look at what God's reassuring plan was. Here's his plan. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. This is an ethnic tribe in southern Babylon that eventually became known as the Babylonian Empire. And God's description of the Chaldeans is shocking. They were bitter. They were hasty. They had no law. They had no morality. They had no ethics. They did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. When they came to a fortified city and the king stood out to try to defend this city, they would laugh. They would build a ramp. They would jump in the city, kill everybody, and move on like the wind. That's God's description of Babylon. That's his plan. That's God's plan in a nutshell, right? Habakkuk, I hear you. I I see the injustice and I'm gonna take care of it. Now, let's try to put this in context. In Noah's day, you remember how God decided to judge the world? Floodwaters to cover the face of the earth. That's how God will judge the wickedness that he sees. In Habakkuk's day, God will send Babylon. It's a bit troubling, isn't it? It did not come for Habakkuk. It brought him to a deeper theological conversation. Wait, now maybe I can get my head around floodwaters as an instrument of God's judgment. Rain is morally neutral, but how could God use Babylon? They're wicked. There's nothing morally neutral about them. They hate you, God. How can you use them? We're bad, but we're not that bad. This leads to Habakkuk's second lament. He's gonna cry out again, pick up in verse 12. I'll read the first part of this lament. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Lord, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he When Habakkuk was confused and scared, he cried out with a theological prayer. That's what he did. He prayed. When his world was falling apart, he comes back to God immediately and laments with a theologically rich prayer. As I was going through this this week, it occurred to me that I don't do this. Our world has a lot of really good gospel-centered resources. And I think I'm letting my heart flock to those and let these resources inform me. When something major in our world happens, for instance, ISIS beheads 21 Christians, this is a major event. My first response is not to pray. 
I, I can, I'm confessing this to my shame. I go and read up on Coptic Christianity and I read what the scholars are saying, what the theologians are saying. I want to know, I want them to inform my thoughts. I've watched more videos about the Planned Parenthood videos than I have spent time praying about abortion. What do the theologians say and what do we need to think about this? Habakkuk goes to God and I want my heart to be trained to go to God and I, and I hope your hearts are trained to go to God. When we see the news, we don't read up on it and talk about it when, locally, when, when your world is falling apart, we don't talk about it and we don't get information that way. We go to God. I want to learn how to do that like Habakkuk did. And when we go, let us go with the theological precision of Habakkuk. This is a rich prayer. Rich. Did you notice how many theological terms? I mean, he's just packing theology here. L listen to it. God, you're eternal. You've always existed. He used God's covenant name, Yahweh. He's reminding him of the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Moses, with David. Yahweh, my God, my Holy One, you can't, see just, you can't see injustice. He called him his rock. That's what the psalmist would call God whenever his world was falling apart. My rock, where are you? He said, you're holy. You can't look at sin. You can't tolerate this. Why are you tolerating this? He was not buttering God up with this theology. He's saying, oh God, you're so good. Why are you? He's not trying to get something out of God. He's just recalling God's divine attributes. That's the mark of a good prayer. He's telling God who he is. And because Habakkuk had a very good scriptural understanding of God, he concluded that God could not wipe out his covenant people. You've promised us this, Yahweh. This is the covenant. This is why he boldly says, we shall not die. We can't. You can't do this to us. Remember the covenant. Remember the promises that you've made. Habakkuk really did not have a, a category for God's plan. How could he use the wicked nation to swallow up the less wicked nation? How, he, how could he let Babylon ruthlessly judge Judah? If, if he did this, God would have to take away all law and all order in our universe. This is why if you finish up Habakkuk's lament, he's going to say, are we like fish? Is it a free-for-all? Do we just do what? Is it survival of the fittest now? Does Babylon just come through and gather up fish in his net and worship his net? Is it, is it just the survival of the fittest? This is a major problem, and Habakkuk did not have an answer for this, and so this is what he does. Look at the end of his lament in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. We've come to the crux of the book. At this point in the narrative, there's a lot of tension, a lot of theological tension, and no resolution. Habakkuk climbs up onto his tower, and he's waiting for God to answer him. I don't know what to do, God. This is a problem, and I don't have any answers. And suddenly, the minor prophets seem a bit more relevant to us, don't they? I mean, we walked into this room with confusion, what is God doing? What is he trying to teach me right now? Is he good? Does he care? Maybe you walked into this room just quietly terrified about your future. I don't know what the next step is, and I'm terrified. Maybe you have a sense of what God is doing in your life, and you just don't like it. God, I don't want to go down this path. Maybe you're terrified about the future of our country, and it grieves you, and it keeps you up at night. Maybe you're terrified about the future of our world and you're losing sleep. Maybe your life is characterized by tension 
and you don't have any answers and any resolution. If that is you, if you're in this room and you're scared or frustrated, you're not alone. Almost every figure in the Bible has been there. Habakkuk was there, and when Habakkuk was there, he climbed up to the watchtower and he waited. What are you going to say? What are you going to tell me, God? I need to know something. We're going to turn now to God's final reassuring response. But let me just kind of give this as an introduction to this final point. It's one of the most profound statements in the entire scriptures, I believe, of faith. And what God is going to say to Habakkuk will produce one of the other most profound statements in the Bible, Habakkuk 3. We'll, we'll study that next week. But God is going to reassure Habakkuk and it will transform Habakkuk. Simply beautiful. He's going to climb down the watchtower change. So I, I hope you're waiting and, and, and he, ready to hear God's word to you this morning. Here, here's how God answered him in chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It'll surely come. It won't delay. God could not have been more reassuring. He told Habakkuk to write down this vision in stone, meaning it's, it's not going away. What I say here will endure from generation to generation. He wanted it run throughout the world. In other words, this Vision will be known. It will be proclaimed. Finally, he said, it will happen. If it seems slow, just wait. Have faith. Be patient. Be patient. It's coming. Habakkuk, the, the vision will happen. It will be proclaimed, and it will endure. What is the vision? The rest of chapter 2. This is the vision that God will say that will transform Habakkuk's life. We um, will summarize most of it, but a lot of it is... The whole vision is summarized in this one beautiful verse, verse 4. So we're going to spend a lot of time here, and I'll, I'll kind of scan through the rest of the chapter later. But the entire vision that God gives Habakkuk as he's waiting on the watchtower is summarized in verse 4. Let's read it together. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. He's turning his attention now to Babylon. Behold, Babylon, the wicked, he's puffed up. There's nothing upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. It is very impossible to overstate the importance of this single verse. One commentator called it the watchword of Christianity and the central theme of the Bible. Remember, we're in Habakkuk. Like, what good has come out of Habakkuk? Well, the central theme of the scriptures. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Once in Romans, once in Galatians, once in Hebrews. In other words, it's an important verse. It was foundational to Martin Luther's theology. In other words, this verse sparked the Protestant Reformation. This is a big verse. If Scott Andrews ever preaches on Habakkuk, he's going to spend a week introducing this verse. That's how important it is. So what does it mean? What does the verse mean? Let's, let's look at it. Here's the promise. The wicked will be consumed by their wickedness, but the righteous will live by faith. The wicked will be consumed by his wickedness, but the righteous will live by his faith. In one sentence, we have the terror and the beauty of the gospel. Here's the terror of the gospel. Judgment is coming. The wicked will perish. Though they prosper now, they will not always prosper. He's talking about Babylon, but again, this can be widely applied across generations to wicked men and women who do not obey God's word. They prosper now, but they will not endure. In verse five, he says that like death, 
the wicked are never content. What this means is that they keep indulging and indulging until they indulge themselves to death. And so this morning, if you're living in your flesh and you're blatantly rebelling against God, be warned. This is the terror of the gospel. According to God's word, you will not live that luxurious lifestyle and that rebellious lifestyle forever. The wicked will consume themselves by their wickedness. In fact, the rest of chapter 2 will spend most of the time talking about how the wicked will not get away with their wickedness. It graphically demonstrates this truth, and it's quite beautiful. God will pronounce five woes on the wicked, each of these three verses. Five woes on the wicked. Let me briefly run through these five woes. We don't have time to look at them in depth, but let me at least outline what God will judge the wicked for. In verse 6, I'll put it on the screen here for you. The wicked will be condemned for taking what does not belong to them. Woe to you for heaping up what you don't own. In verse 9, the wicked will be condemned for finding their security and their own resources, for building up these immaculate lofts, thinking that they're safe from harm's reach. Woe to you who do this. In verse 12, the wicked were condemned for shedding blood and using violence and injustice to get ahead in life. Woe to you. In 15, the wicked were condemned for manipulating the weak, for getting their neighbors drunk in order to expose them so that they could demonstrate their own glory. God hates that. Woe to you. And in verse 19, the wicked were condemned as a summary for bowing down to dead and lifeless idols. Woe to you. I wish we had more time to look at it because this is a pretty incredible thing that happens. After each woe, God is going to emphasize and show how justice will prevail. You're getting away with this now. You're heaping up what you don't own. You're, Babylon, you're sweeping through the, the world taking countries that don't belong to you. But your debtors will cry out against you and they'll take it back. Justice will prevail. Second woe, you're building these beautiful immaculate houses up on the hills, safe from harm's reach. You think you're fine. You're trusting in your wealth for security, but woe to you. Even the stones and the beams of your house will cry out against you. Unbelievable. You're killing people. You're shedding innocent blood. But the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as waters cover the sea. These are reassuring responses to to Habakkuk, who's frightened that Babylon's going to run over him. And God says, no, look at Babylon. Judgment is coming on them. You see, it is impossible. It is impossible to build a sustainable life of injustice on God's planet. You can do it for a time, and you can live and get away with violence for a time, and get away with corruption for a time, and you can trust in your money for a time, but it is impossible to build a sustainable lifestyle of injustice and corruption. It won't happen. And so as our world goes that way, as our country goes that way, no, it's not sustainable. It won't last. God's justice is woven into the fabric of the world and eventually the rocks will cry out. And the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea. Amen. That's the terror of the gospel, that the, judge, the wicked will be judged. Let's explore the beauty of the gospel because in verse four of chapter two, it comes around, the wicked, you will be consumed by your wicked, okay? Your wickedness, that will consume you, but the righteous will live by his faith. The wicked will perish, but the righteous will live. God reassured salvation, that's, reassured Habakkuk that salvation is possible. 
in the midst of judgment. Remember, Habakkuk's sitting on the watchtower. God had just said that the wicked nation is gonna swallow you up, and God now reassures him that you'll live by your faith. The righteous will survive by their faith. They'll find salvation through faith and faith alone. Habakkuk, you will survive this invasion by renouncing your own strength and renouncing your own resources and putting away your dead, lifeless idols and trusting in the living God who hears and having faith in God, not in yourself. That's how the righteous will survive. I feel like I need to remind you right now that we're in Habakkuk. We're in the Old Testament. Isn't that profound? This was written six centuries before Jesus walked through Galilee and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, wicked, (laughs) your time is up. Salvation is here, the kingdom of God is near. Unbelievable. It explains the powerful truth that God's people have always been saved by what? By faith. Sometimes we have this unhelpful divide that the people in the Old Testament were saved by observing the law and the people in the New Testament were saved by grace and we just can't reconcile these two. Nobody has ever been saved by obeying the law by their own strength. Read Galatians chapter three, the righteous live by faith. Nobody has ever been saved by works of the law. This theme was so foundational to the Apostle Paul that he placed it at the very beginning of his gospel presentation, the most extensive and beautiful gospel presentation that we have in Romans. Listen to it in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For, the, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, as God told Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. God's people, listen, God's people always respond to adversity by trusting in God. That is the only place that salvation can be found. Habakkuk lived in a chaotic time and God asked him to respond in faith. Don't trust in your idols. Don't trust in your money. Don't trust in your strength. Don't trust in acquiring land that's not yours. Trust in God. Have faith. And so, church, let us respond to God by having faith. Let us renounce our own resources and turn to God. As Paul would continue in the book of Romans, He's gonna show that the righteousness of God is expressed most clearly through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, Romans chapter three. Habakkuk held on to the promise that God had made a covenant with Israel and that he would sustain them through that. We hold on to the promise that God has eternally saved us from death. And we cling to that promise right now and right now we wait for God's return. If it seems slow, wait for it. If it seems like it's not coming, wait for it. That's the message of Hebrews chapter 10 when he uses this passage. Wait for God's return. Wait for Christ's return. And so this morning, I want to end by um, having us cultivate this type of saving faith. The final verse in chapter two, if you'll look at chapter two, verse 20, will give us a clue on how to cultivate this kind of faith. God has just pronounced five woes on the wicked. Woe to you, woe to you. Woe to you. And he's just condemned them for bowing down to, right, to worthless idols. But then in verse 20, he says this. Says, You're bowing down to your worthless idol, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. This morning, I want for us to respond in the same way that Habakkuk undoubtedly responded in silent, humble, reverent worship. This is where faith is cultivated. And that silence, as you renounce your strength, as you renounce your resources, as you renounce 
any way that you can find salvation other than God alone and humble, reverent silence and let God speak to you this morning. He hears you. If you need to lament, lament. He hears you. He sees your frustration. He knows that you're confused and he is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let us worship in reverent silence. I want to invite the band to come on up. They're going to stand here and let us... Just have a few moments of silence. Let's climb up to the watchtower with Habakkuk. A lot of tension, no resolution. Be silent before God. Strengthen your faith. We're going to have a couple of minutes of silence, and then they're going to lead us um, in one final song, and we'll respond in song.